Welcome to the Enrollment Edge, a podcast for college enrollment and marketing leaders. I'm your host, Jay Fedgie. The Enrollment Edge is sponsored by Enrollment Fuel, a trusted full-service student search and digital marketing partner to colleges and universities across the country. If you'd like to learn more about Enrollment Fuel services, or you have questions about today's podcast, we've included a link to our website in the show notes. You can also email us at edge at enrollmentfuel.com. We'd love to hear what you think. You can help us by subscribing to our podcast, sharing it with your friends, and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. On this episode of the Enrollment Edge, I talked to Enrollment Fuel's president, Dr. Jackie Elliott. One of the many things Jackie is known for is her intense travel schedule. In fact, her passport is almost as thick as a Sears catalog. And along her journeys, Jackie seems to find herself in continuous and ongoing conversations with enrollment leaders on nearly every continent. During these conversations, she's picked up on clear and prominent themes of recruiting challenges, escalating staffing issues, deepening value concerns for a college degree, and the student communities under increasing stresses. In this episode, we'll look ahead at the imminent enrollment environment through the lens of these reoccurring themes. If you're an enrollment leader, this is a must-listen episode. Well, welcome back to The Edge, Jackie Elliott. Good to have you here today. Thanks, Jay. It's good to see you. How are you? I am doing really, really well. I was just saying to you that you were the very first guest on this Enrollment Edge podcast, and now you're number 42. It's uh, it's kind of amazing how, how fast it's gone. I know it goes fast and I'm, and I'm really excited because that's my age 40. No, it isn't. Just <laughs> yeah. yeah and abso- absolutely. Just hang on to that, <laughs> grab that age and just hang on to it as long as you, as long as you want to. So yeah. we were, we were talking about topics and um, I, in, in the introduction, I think I call you an intrepid traveler. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have one of the most intense travel schedules of anybody I've ever met. In fact, uh, I, I, <laughs> I mentioned your uh, your passport is like a Sears catalog. You it just it's you've you've just been so many places and talked to so many people. And one of the things that uh, I, I notice uh, as you talk, you come always come back to conversations with those of us at Enrollment Fuel and say, "This is what I'm hearing. This mm-hmm. is what I'm hearing. I'm hearing this. Is anybody hearing this?" And and almost to the T, people will go, "Oh yeah, oh I'm hearing that too." Yeah. Uh, and and so you're you're this you're this magnet, I think, of, of information because you put yourself into so many different conversations, and and so we we thought you know this would be a really interesting uh, episode to to talk about you know as the intrepid traveler, Dr. Jackie Elliott moves around. <laughs> what are you hearing? And and you you gave me you gave me a very long list, but we kind of pared it down to a few uh, a few themes. And I'd love to dive into those with you because I think sure. that our enrollment leaders uh, are going to need to pay attention to this if they're not already feeling it. Uh, we're going to identify some, maybe some of the things, some of the the, the intensities uh, that they're feeling right now that I think that uh, are really important to continue to pay attention to. So you came back, we came back with, with six themes. 
Mm-hmm. Some of them are related in some ways. And, and let me just kind of walk through them. We're just going to dig into them more. Uh, one is this outcome or ROI of a degree. And mm-hmm. I think that that is incredibly important, not, not only among uh, among colleges, but communities. Community, what is what is a, the value of degree? And the, the value of the degree in the age of Amazon. Um, there are, you know, and I use Amazon because it's an easy one to target and say, there's a lot of other options out there besides degrees. Um, the third is building bridges. I love this one because I think that more colleges are going to have to do this. We're going to be forced. So building bridges across their campus, but really across, uh, kind of co- competition lines, uh, states and counties and, and, uh, and, and borders. Uh, the fourth is academic modality. Uh, providing options, uh, delivering education. The fifth is student mental health yeah. and the stresses there. And the sixth is uh, college faculty and college staff health issues. And I call it burnout and turnout. Yeah. And you and I have seen that just like crazy people coming to us and saying, who do you know? I have these openings. Who do you know? Who do you know? Because there's so many folks that are finding the exit ramps of uh, of this profession. So let's let's take kind of these one at a time. And um, as you have talked with folks, talk about this ROI uh, conversation. Um, what are, what are you hearing? What are they saying? What what do you what is the intensity of that that has kind of grabbed your attention? Um, I think it falls into two categories: what I'm hearing from the students and focus groups, and what I'm hearing on the campus from our leaders and administrators. The students are always interesting because it's unvarnished, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you know, I I always in my student focus groups just say, you know, I'm here, I'm neutral, be yourself. There there are no administrators, there are no parents, nobody's in the room with you except me, and they're they can be pretty direct and. What I hear from them more and more is while they have there, there's this cognitive dissonance almost for them because they've mm-hmm. grown up always hearing the value of the college education. You have to go, you have to go. Um, but now in the past couple of years, there's been that shift where they feel like they're being given permission to question that for the yeah. first time, maybe. Um, is it okay to take a gap year? Is it okay to go into a trade or a skill where people are looking more and more at the at the cost of college, the parents included, and mm-hmm. that trickles down to the student conversation? Um, I was surprised by the number of students that said my parents and I talk about this openly in terms of money, because of course, in mm. I'd say in our day you know, going back to the, age, like, <laughs> right. we didn't always talk money with our families. Like that was kind of off the table. It was mom right. and dad make the money and it's their responsibility and, you know, they'll figure it out and I have a role, but that's all mom and dad. No, it seems like more and more there's this conversation and the students are talking about how they're having those conversations with their parents. And again, the permission to maybe say, Hey, I can have $8,000 in debt, maybe, Mm-hmm. And come out making eighty or a hundred thousand um, dollars, you know, with a degree for plumbing or electric or you know mechanics or something like that. And in fact, I mean, I hate to kind of go down a personal rabbit hole, but you know, I'm doing that right now with my 18 year old son. He mm-hmm. was planning to go free education to Pellissippi in Tennessee, as you know, mm-hmm. um, community college is free. Yeah. 
he opted to not go to college, even though that's what hmm. his dad and I said, we want you to do. So sure. he is pursuing um, a gap year and then wants to go into auto mechanics. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, you know, trades, if, 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 a, if a person, I've always believed if someone uh, uh, chooses a trade, there's nobility in whatever trade yeah. that is. Janitorial, Absolutely. you know, whatever it is, it doesn't matter as long as that person is choosing it. And it sounds like he's choosing it, right? Absolutely. And we support that. But, you yeah. know, growing up, what did he always hear? We went to college. We went to, go college, to college. Go to college. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So um, we're very excited about his decision. He seems passionate about it. We think it's um, the right choice for him, yeah. given his aptitudes. He's very good um, with the mechanics and working with his hands and mm-hmm. He just said, you know, the idea of me sitting, doing what you guys do in an office all day, you know, eight, 10 hours. He's like, I just can't do that. I can't sit still. I need to be moving and working with something. So, um, but that's where the students are. You know, they, they feel like, I think for the first time they're allowed or given some Mm -hmm. grace to question if I, if I have to go to college and that, that question of the value of what am I coming out with in terms of debt versus my income ratio right away. Right. Um, now. I think that we all know what's in the literature, you know, whether it be actual research based or just, you know, inside higher ed blogs or that sort of thing Mm -hmm. about how the families are feeling. And it mirrors what the students are saying in the focus groups, obviously, like how much am I willing to pay out for the value of the ROI coming out? If I, if I'm, we're going to have, you know, $60,000 in debt and loan debt And the first year out, the average fresh, you know, the average graduate is making around 50,000 versus I, you know, I can make average 80 with a trade with less debt, you know, this. And I think, Jay, that this goes back to something that you're passionate about, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, that where all the men yeah, I think a lot of right. our men are looking at these opportunities for trade and, right. and it's and it's a good move for them, honestly. Right. And and we need it. I mean, we've needed it in our in our nation for a long time. There's sure. been kind of a a void there. So I think we're kind of circling back to some different eras. You you mentioned uh gap year. There's a um a a blogger, writer, uh thinker. His name is Scott Galloway. He's a professor at NYU. I I quote him once in a while. Um, but he he has a number of articles that he talked about, not only uh, this gap year idea, but gap period. So it's mm-hmm. moving from a, I'm going to take a year off and kind of find some things or just pull back from from education and and reassess. Maybe that was kind of the 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 mentality or the philosophy behind it. Now it's, um, you know, I'm going to take some time away, earn some money uh, and begin yeah. to maybe pull some life together, enjoy some things and not necessarily go to college. And I call it the Amazon effect. The age of Amazon is I, I have lots of other options right now that I don't need to, you know, at, at whatever Amazon's paying, or uh, there's a number of, of uh, jobs out there that are paying really well um, right out of the gate. And oftentimes that's very attractive for uh, a young a young person coming out of uh, out of school 18 19 years old and and Galloway talks about there's there is significantly more women in higher ed now yep. and fewer men uh, and the men are taking more and more time away and just just starting to work and not necessarily moving into college and and higher ed enrollment leaders 
really need to pay attention to this and become aware and change. We're going to talk about modalities and, and degrees in a bit, but change some offerings to bring the, the these this part of our our society back into into education. I mean, do, what do you think about that? No, I, I totally agree. Um, I think that we just have to be aware of if we're going to be attracting more women, what does that look like? What right. type, as you talk about, what what are those degrees? Um, how do we change some of the degree offerings to bring back the men? Yeah. So, you know, maybe we create more hands-on types of opportunities that previously wouldn't have been thought of as appropriate in the ivory tower, but mm-hmm. we really need to be thinking about um, the business end of the university and how we're generating revenue. I mean, at the end of the day, I know people always cringe, particularly my faculty friends and as a faculty mm-hmm. you know, member, but it's a business and we're yeah. in, we're in a sales business and we're selling to these families and to these students and we have a product and it has to be something that people want to purchase at the end of the day. Right. Right. And, and there's so much right now and, and the pandemic kind of accelerated. We talked about this quite a bit in a number of episodes uh, of the edge that the pandemic accelerated some mm-hmm. things that were laying maybe dormant or, dormant, or yeah. kind of sitting there. Uh, and it, it accelerated them to to a point where people would question the default. You could talk about the default of going mm-hmm. to college. Well, maybe I won't. And and there was maybe less pushback because it wasn't as safe as it, it, it maybe we wanted it to be or the way, way it was. But you look at it and parents and families went, you know, take some time. It's okay. Uh, we've got nothing but time. Relax. And you don't know what you want to major in anyway. Let's just kind of let's just kind of see how it goes in the next few years. Well, we're going to get into that mental health thing, but I think a lot yeah. of it has to do with with some of that as well, giving some space and some time. And, and you know, I know we're going to talk about that, but I think yeah. there is a linkage there as well. Um, one other thing before we leave that topic, um, I think is important. I also hear this disconnect about the value of education in terms of going directly into a major that is very mm-hmm. focused versus mm-hmm. a liberal arts education. Broad, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so when I meet with companies and organizations and executives and talk to them about what they're seeking, mm-hmm. the irony is really they're still seeking that kind of whole person, liberally educated individual who can problem solve who is a good writer, who is a good speaker, who can hit the ground running in the workforce, they feel like in many ways they can teach the content on the job, but what they can't teach well are those skills. Those skills need to be already developed coming into the job market. And so I think there's another whole topic there for an edge podcast with somebody about you know, how, what is the value of the liberal arts education when we are thinking about this ROI versus Mm -hmm. we're just going to focus strictly on getting into, you know, your, your med degree, you know, with a heavy focus undergrad or engineering right out the gate with the, without a lot of those general education requirements that, that we, you know, used to really push. Yeah. Um, I do think there's something underlying in that when you talk about the ROI of an education, mm-hmm. because of the degree, because 
again, the more wholly educated someone is, I think there's value to that, to the hiring manager. And um, there's a connection there. Yeah. It's uh, uh, having a a spouse that's been an HR all her career, most of her career. uh, The, uh, what we, what, what hiring managers see uh, what the, and what they, in a resume, what they don't see, that emotional intelligence, that communication skill, uh, the thinking, the problem solving, that's, I think that is, those are the soft skills that uh, can create a great team or can sabotage teams. So I'm going to switch gears here a minute. Um, the, the, that other theme, the next theme that you talked about uh, was this this idea of building bridges. And this is a fascinating one for me uh, because we've had a number of podcast episodes on this that said uh, colleges need to think outside the box of yeah. of their, you know, their their fiefdoms. You know, they, they need to be thinking about how uh, they're going to survive in collaboration with other institutions, other systems, other organizations, as opposed to beating other systems, other colleges, other organizations. So talk a minute about what you're hearing in terms of, or what you're seeing in in that space on how are schools going to be needing to look at cooperating in the future? What are their, what are their options? Well, I think one thing that happens in higher education is we do something for years and we do it well and we then don't move swiftly to change. All right, right. Where we we're not what I would typically call a nimble industry. <laughs> I I was we were just on a conversation with uh, a college and uh, the college said we need to create a degree but the faculty are requiring that it has a 50 year shelf life. And I thought, what degree is having 50 year shelf life these days? It, yeah, if you yeah. get if you get, you know, two years out of a degree, I think that might be kind of the expectation, right? You're right. Yeah. So I mean, that's a great example of we're we're not particularly nimble. And um, so when I think about the role of the college president, I think that presidents come in with this list of expectations from a variety of constituents from the mm-hmm. board, the faculty, the students, and and they kind of all look the same because that's what we've been doing for a very long time. Mm-hmm. I think that for institutions to become more entrepreneurial and to think outside the box, that that comes directly from top leadership. So boards right. and presidents need to shift mindsets about how to be entrepreneurial and the job description of the chancellor, the president, needs to probably shift and change. And I don't think that's happening. Um, you know, I I think about when I was at one time thinking about being a college president and all the work that I did with Harvard IEM and um, the American Council on Education and everything that I went through, you know, for that training was fundraising, media relations, uh, legal, like all of these kind of operational things that were very presidential at that time. Mm -hmm. Never once did we talk about how to think outside the box or to be an Mm -hmm. entrepreneur or to create something that had never really been done or, you know, to be a risk taker in that space for the institution. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a thread there um, that's important. And I often think about Nathan Graw's book, The Agile College. I think there are a lot of, and I won't go into that because people can obviously look for themselves, but Mm. I think there are a lot of really great points he makes in that book that talks about different ways for 
um, institutions to, as you say, think outside the box, look at yeah. things differently, stretch mm-hmm. that rubber band in a, in a different way without breaking it. When, when you see, uh, you, you mentioned the, this, this idea of building bridges. Um, there's when, when schools get into, uh, I don't want to say panic mode, but they get into the urgency phase mm-hmm. of their life and, and, Revenue is not moving forward and enrollment is not moving forward and brand of the school is not moving forward. They, their, their, uh, their community, their, their possibility of, of enrollment is kind of collapsing around them. Their degree offerings are old. There's all of these, these forces that are taking this, these schools and saying, uh, you know, you are in trouble. And there's, there's really only a couple of different options at that point, either work with somebody. Yeah. Or, or stop working. Right. You know, or, or, or the other is completely reinvent yourself and, and reinventing yourself seems like the hardest possible uh, solution to that because schools just don't have the capacity to kind of break it down to the studs and then build it back up again. So you're talking about building bridges, these collaboratives, these, um, these joining of forces, we're seeing a little bit more of this now. Are you saying that you're thinking that we're going to be seeing a lot more of this in the future, that schools that are in these stages are going to have to start to partner? I'm, I'm hoping so, Jay. I mean, this is where where I was going with the, the president's role. I think the president yeah. needs an equal role of I'm out traveling, fundraising for the institution with I'm out meeting with corporations and executives and thinking about partnerships and ways where we can have investment in the institution from larger corporations. Maybe there's a a contract with, you know, a Boeing or a Lockheed Martin or something like that, where the institution has the opportunity to do training for all of their employees in that way for certifications. It may Mm -hmm. not be degree options always, right? Like we need to be thinking differently about certifications or stacking smaller credentials for people, um, that type of thing. But I think what we typically do is we use our traditional ways of recruiting and the Mm -hmm. ways that we think about finding people. And we kind of stay in that path as opposed to creating these linkages or these bridges that we've talked about where we're going out to corporations and trying to intentionally build that partnership in some sort of contractual way that says, you know, we will go to the local bank and Mm -hmm. all, you know, 600 of the people across the tri-county area in this bank can come to our institution for all of your training needs. And we're going to, whatever that is that the Mm -hmm. bank needs, we're going to create the content for you. So you reverse Mm -hmm. engineer the content to what somebody needs, as opposed to here's the content we already have. Do you want it? Right. Right. No, maybe it's, we don't have any content. We need somebody to teach it. You develop it. We'll sign the contract. Train our people. It was, it was, uh, uh, six, eight months ago, I talked to uh, Dr. John Downey, president of the community college out in uh, Virginia. And he talked about workforce and he yeah. talked about schools meeting the needs of workforce in, in that, in that episode. And it sounds like this is just that echo of that, that yeah. moment of schools need to look out at the workforce and say, what is, what is labor need? Or do they, do we need more of this? Do we need more of that? And not think of it in a, in a holistic way. And we're going to talk about modality now. And that is, you know, this traditional way of uh, start 
at point A, you're 18, and be done at 22, four years later, get a degree, walk across the stage, uh, shake the hands of a president, you know, tell her that, you know, <laughs> uh, thank you for the degree, and then, you know, and then start paying your bills. Right. So that that's that that's kind of the default traditional way of thinking. And we're talking about some different ideas on micro degrees and certificates. And maybe those are meeting the workforce needs, uh, mm-hmm. labor force uh, that meets it in a more significant, intentional way than what we're doing now. Well, if you if you think back historically, you know, to the late 70s, early 80s, when some of the first adult what we at that time called adult degree programming started, mm-hmm. that's really the genesis of how that happened was schools needed to create new streams of revenue. They had to think differently. They were looking at who needs who needs help. Well, we have all these adults who may have started or, you know, had gone to, off to war and needed to come back and finish. And so there there was this opportunity. I think right. we're at history repeats itself. We're in the same sort of place if we think creatively and we start looking at what what does society need? What does everyone right. need? And you're right on with workforce development. I think back even um, you know, to the mid-2000s, I was in an institution. I just come to an institution. I was in Washington, D.C., came to Tennessee, and um, we really had a pretty strong um, adult and graduate program that, that was, you know, all across the state. And we were serving students in these smaller offsite locations, like many mm-hmm. institutions did. But what we weren't considering was exactly that workforce development. And so I was looking at how can we generate more revenue? So I started working with all the chambers in, you know, about 10 counties that were, you know, within an hour, hour and a half drive of the institution. And through the chambers, we started doing a lot of workforce development type workshops where mm-hmm. we would send faculty out and do these half day training workshops. And, you know, almost like what we do at Enrollment Fuel with Rev, right? Like we right. create the content that people say, hey, we need we need content for our mission counselors on subject X. Can you build it? Yes. Then we take it to them. Same mm-hmm. sort of concept, really. Um, I think that and that worked well for us. We we generated a lot of revenue by looking at what the workforce needed. So again, there are lots of ways, I think, Jay, that we can be creative about the types of bridges we build, the modality with which we deliver them. It just really is going to take a, a shift to being more entrepreneurial at the right. end of the day. You know, uh, one thing that I think uh, we've all heard uh as we've talked with schools, and I think you have too, I've, I've heard you mention this a number of times, is that the pandemic came and forced colleges to change a modality yeah. that they thought, and, and to correct me if I'm wrong, that they thought was easier or at least not as important uh, mm-hmm. as an in-class, I'm talking with 30 faces that are you know sitting in desks at looking at me or mm. in, in a, you know, in, in a face-to-face setting. And suddenly they were, they were forced into changing and modifying that into some kind of an online setting. Yeah. And there's the, there's a new modality. Okay. So yeah. now we've got an, a, a new way of teaching that class that a lot of faculty struggled with. A lot of colleges struggled with some did Absolutely. it well, some did it well, some didn't do it well. I had a student in college at the time. They did not do it well. Um, we've heard lots of horror stories of not doing it well. Um, 
the intentionality, the thoughtfulness that has to go into building that into a a good delivery system, I think took people by, by surprise. It did. And this is another link to bridging. So if, if you know, many institutions realized, oh, we're not so good at this, we need yeah. to, you know, outsource this. So this is a, a huge area that's now been privatized. You know, you think about bookstores were the big thing and then food service. Mm-hmm. Now it's this area that's being privatized for institutions because they realize it's a heavy resource. It's a big lift. We don't do it as well as we could. So this is another way where bridges to the outside are being built um, in order to bring value to the learning, to the education, to the way we teach the student. Um, I, I do think that something you m- mentioned, Jay, about that um, period in COVID yeah. And the expectations of what people perceive mm-hmm. is interesting because the grass is always greener is what mm-hmm. I came to find out when I was, again, talking to students in the focus groups, I went in with the presumption that they were going to be thrilled, you know, to because all I ever heard was, oh, hey, going to school, I wish we could do more online. Oh, yeah. Guess what? When that reality set in and that was the way the students were like, oh, they did not particularly enjoy it. Now, here's what I what I learned from those focus groups. And this is, I think, something that's interesting for faculty to hear. And it it can bruise a faculty member's heart, including Mm -hmm. me. So the students say, look. We're in the age of technology. I can self-teach a lot. I can pull down Coursera. I can, you know, YouTube, pull things up on Google. I can get mm-hmm. content all day long on my own. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to a class and all the professor is doing is kind of spilling content, what's the value in that? Sure. So that's a big yeah. shift because of the way technology has influenced. And I think that many of us as faculty are again in this old mindset of uh, sage on the stage. I hold all the knowledge. I am the expert. Mm. My job is to push this expert knowledge out. The students don't see it that way anymore. They're like, look, if I am taking you know, some sort of general education requirement, I can do that online all day long. It's fine. I'm happy to take an online class. When I'm in my major and I'm getting into the heavier content or I'm in something like calculus or something where I need that expert in the class to help really teach me, I do not want to be in an online class for that. I want Mm -hmm. to be person to person. And they really feel like the value of the in-person setting is not so much the, the knowledge of the faculty member, which is what we always think about, right? From a business perspective, that the tuition dollar you're paying for is the salary of this person in front of you teaching. Mm-hmm. What the students are saying is, I learn as much or more from my peers in the classroom than I do from the professor if the professor structures the learning in the classroom in such a way that I have that opportunity to interact. Yeah. And, 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 and I think as adult and graduate programs figured out a long time ago, the cohort model, whether it was in person or whether it was not in person was as valuable in many ways, real life experience as what was happening. Kind of like you said, sage and on the stage. Yeah, absolutely. So The students really want the opportunity to engage with their classmates. And, you know, they'll say, 
the professor may say something and I'm, I'm kind of like, I get it, I think. Mm-hmm. And then a, a student in the class will repeat it in their own words in their yeah. way they understand it. And then when they reword it, I totally get it. Sure. So I need that sort of interaction. Um, I, what's interesting is that the students really prefer mm-hmm. in person learning for the sake of learning. Mm-hmm. And they're like, if look, if I'm just going to have a professor, that's just going to sp- spill the knowledge or just kind of go through the textbook, just give that to me online. Right. You know, when, when we talk with uh, schools, uh, we do consulting at enrollment fuel. We talk to schools, we do a lot of research. And one thing that I've noticed is as I look at iPads data and mm. there's, there's a section in iPads data about uh percentage or, or uh, uh, the the stated percentage of, of a school's education uh, that is online versus in person. Um, and a number of years ago, most colleges that I looked at were two, three percent at most yeah. online, unless they were the online school, unless right. they were the University of Phoenix or whatever. Exactly. Um, they were they were all online or they were all in person, but there was hardly uh, many schools that were kind of blending that. Now I think there's that expectation. I see now in the iPads data. 25%, 30%, 40% of, of a student's education in, <laughs> yeah. the, in the traditional sense is online and the rest of it is in person. And I think that there is a, uh, a an expectation for that traditional age student to have some content, some of that flexibility, yeah. not I'd, at nine in the morning, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm going to sit my rear end in a class and I'm going to listen to this and try to stay awake with my giant cup of mochaccino. And, <laughs> you know, instead I want to do this at 11 o'clock at night when I've got some time. And so there's, there's gotta be some flexibility in the modality there of the delivery of when I want to versus when you want to give it to me. No, agree. And that goes back to, again, that business model. You know, if if we look at how businesses operate and those that are successful, they had to turn everything on it uh, over. It was not the traditional, you know, nine to five and mm-hmm. closed on Sunday and everything. You know, we roll up the carpet at five mm-hmm. o'clock, roll up the sidewalks at five o'clock right. for businesses to be successful. They had to say, when are people buying at, when mm-hmm. they're off work? It's the same sort of thing with, I think, our students in the university setting. When are students able to be in the classroom Mm -hmm. for our older students, they're working. So we have to, and I know this is nothing revelatory. We know Mm -hmm. this in higher ed, we need this flexibility, but 24 hour on demand sort of learning opportunities. I think that is critical as we move forward. Um, I think that when we talk about modalities, it's not only just the way that we teach, Mm -hmm. um, but the timing of where we of the timing of when we teach, the where of when we teach, are we offering different, still different places, different locations? Um, are we offering evenings? Are we offering weekends? Are we doing cohort? Are we doing individual? There's so many ways to slice and dice it. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's this this thing about you can't be everything to everyone. And mm-hmm. I, I understand that, but I do think that we need each institution needs to look at their individual capability and push the envelope to do what they can do. And, you know, to to not just accept that, well, we have online, they can pick online as the student or they can come in class. And so we give both options and put a check mark in that box. I don't think that's going to be 
um, successful in the future. I think institutions that do that will continue to struggle to meet that revenue and they mm-hmm. will continue to, you know, have their hair on fire and that's going to be a challenge. And, and uh, the pedagogy has to change. Um, Absolutely. In, in, in significant ways. So that's going to take uh, and put some burden on faculty to, to figure out ways to do it differently. I think the, you know, the thing that the students love is, is the number one thing is they say, look, when a faculty member can bring in real world examples of mm-hmm. things from their experience, or they have stories that I can remember the story and the content through the story. This is largely what I'm hearing students say. I really learn from this kind of storytelling mm-hmm. um, opportunity that a faculty member gives or some sort of opportunity where here's the content, but then how is it applied in something that's meaningful mm-hmm. to me? I think that's where we have to start really stretching the change in the pedagogy so that it's, again, um, practitioner-based, more stories, things that students remember, Um, you know, and I I don't, as a faculty member, I never want to be, you know, edutainment either. There is that, you know, I mean, there is that kind of fine line, but I want to, you know, create opportunities. Like when I teach intro to business, um, one of the things that, well, I do two things that the students really find unique and different. One is what does every business need to be able to do? Take mm-hmm. minutes of meetings. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> what textbook teaches you how to take minutes in a business class? That's sure. not any, it's a, again, it's that soft skill, very practical, yeah. but students leave, they go into the business world and they show up for their first week. And because they're, you know, new person and low on the total pole, they get to take the minutes. Mm-hmm. And they're like, I've never done this before. What do you mean? Take the minutes. So each student for one of the classes is assigned to take minutes of the class Mm -hmm. and they learn to take minutes that way and they turn it in and they post it for every student. So essentially the notes are taken, but Mm -hmm. they're taken in the form of minutes. Sure. And then they're, you know, collected. The second thing I do is I pair students and they have to. Um, they, they draw a number, the number correlates to the textbook. Mm -hmm. So if you're number six, you are chapter six. So Jay, you and I would be a partner and our assignment is chapter six. You Mm -hmm. have to refute what the textbook says. Disagree. Rather than Mm -hmm. accept everything that's being taught, you have to go out and do research and prove the textbook wrong. Right. I love it. I love the critical thinking of of that, I, I at times tried to incorporate that into my my freshman class that I taught as well, trying to uh, teach a critical mind as and and critical thinking as opposed to just kind of uh, open the lid at the top of the head and just you know dump all the knowledge. Absolutely. In. So these are all things I think that go back to you know modality and pedagogical changes, being you know mm-hmm. entrepreneurial, trying to make some sh- small shifts in in the way that we produce the learning, which always goes back to the ROI mm-hmm. of the value of the education. If we start making some of these things where the students come home and go, wow, I've never had a faculty member tell me to argue the textbook. You know, right. I've always been taught you just accept what's put in front of you because the teacher said or the textbook said, and so that's right. Memorize Is it? it. Yeah. Where's the reflective judgment in that? Mm-hmm. You know, you and I uh, work with schools to uh, help them with their enrollment and and uh, help them be successful recruiting students. And all of this kind of comes back to this idea that we have to reframe even what college is all about in many ways. It's it's uh, 
not about uh, the the most traditional things. It's about a variety of of new ways of thinking about education and value propositions and so forth. And and so you know, as as we talk with colleges and universities uh, and how to present that, it's big. There's challenges there because they have to think outside of their branding box and say, okay, this is how we've always been. And this is kind of where we're moving forward into, and we're going to have to change some messaging and some ways of, of how to communicate and present our school. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, one of the things that I love about higher education, you know, when I look at Bowman and Deal's four frames of leadership is Higher ed and the church are probably the two industries that fit into the fourth frame of um, what would loosely be translated into tradition. Mm-hmm. So um, it's symbolism is what it is in Bowman mm-hmm. and Deal, but symbolism are all the things, the symbolic frame. So what mm-hmm. are the traditions of the organization? We hang on to that in higher yeah. ed. Jay. I mean, yeah. we we love our traditions, and we and there mm-hmm. there's a lot to be said for that. Which is, you know, teaching students to appreciate that sort of thing. And to, but again, it can be a negative force if we are so steeped in our traditions and that we've always done it this way, and we just hang on to that. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to see more and more institutions really suffer or close or have to merge or, mm-hmm. you know, all these things that were, that were, that's being talked about in the landscape right now. You said the evil word merge. Um, I, I'm talking with Dr. Jackie it. Elliott. I'm talking with Dr. Jackie Elliott about what she has seen in her many travels this last year and what what enrollment leaders need to be paying attention to. And let's let's shift a little bit into students. We talked about the students and how uh, uh, how they're doing and uh, faculty and staff and how they're doing. One of the things that I think is, is pressed upon me is when I look at how fast colleges and how fast high schools really and elementary schools and, and, and junior highs, middle schools had to change how they do everything. And likewise, the families that were involved with those institutions had to change how they did everything. They had to do it almost overnight. It felt like, right. And the stress and the anxiety we've, we've, you know, it's well documented the the amount of anxiety and stress within our culture, within our society is seems to be growing exponentially all the time. Mm-hmm. This was like a volcanic eruption for stress, you know, and colleges now are having to deal with years of students coming through the education system yeah. without without uh predictability without stability with without a lot of what they were expecting in high school and suddenly now they're landing on college doorsteps so again tradition mm-hmm. we love we love our data and the tradition of our data years mm-hmm. and years of pretty consistent data that we look at in enrollment to make predictions to model and all that's gone for the first time, I think, Jay, what, what the pandemic did was the student has always come to, well, I shouldn't say always, that's a big word. The student generally comes to an adult in times of stress, mm. crisis, to look for answers, guidance, help, 
for the first time, the answers weren't there for us in those roles because we didn't know. For anybody. Right. So right. this is the first time where, you know, you you turn around to somebody who is an expert and you expect an answer. And everybody, all of us look to each other as experts and everybody's like, I don't know. I don't shrug. know. I don't Big have shrug. data. I can't yeah. answer that. Shrug, shrug, shrug. So while the uh, the adults are struggling to right size the campus to work through all the policies, work through the health issues, work through the short staff, work through sickness, work through grief. We had a lot of loss. Mm, yeah. People were dealing as adults with all of their own subset of stuff. And there wasn't a lot of bandwidth or energy to probably be helping the students with their stuff because everybody was just hanging on, you know, by thread in a way. So I think mm-hmm. this is the first time that I've really seen um, where we as the professionals and the, as the adults, as the experts, as those people who are helpers, counselors, mm-hmm. we needed our own counseling in some ways. So how can we help others, particularly sure. our students? And so it just created this entire environment of uncertainty where there, there just were no answers anywhere. That's, I've never, I can't remember a time in higher education, even 9-11, I mean, yeah. we had answers, we had solutions, people knew how to deal with crisis and, you know, but not this, it was so different. Yeah, 9-11, we dealt with grief. Uh, I mean, I was on the campus those days and we dealt with the grief, we dealt with the uncertainty, the fear, the anger, but it wasn't, on my campus. Correct. The threat wasn't on my campus and it wasn't on the campus across the street and it wasn't on the campus across town. It was, it was elsewhere. It was geopolitical in, in many ways. Right. But it wasn't, it wasn't me at that right. moment, unless I wanted to travel and then it was me, yeah, but, right. but this, this is different. But, this was everybody. Right. But as an adult in that moment, yeah. too, as a counselor, as as a as a figurehead to a young person who's coming to you in fear, mm-hmm. you yourself weren't worrying about you had the strength to say everything mm-hmm. will be fine. This is you, you, you had some sort of response or some sort of logical thing to say to the student in that moment as the adult of a, a character of strength. Yeah. In this situation, how could you do that? Right. You couldn't. You couldn't say, oh, everything's going to be fine. Or, oh, you know, I've been through this. I've seen similar situations. I've We've had yeah. examples of X, Y, and Z, of other acts of terrorism. You know, there we couldn't do it with this because we weren't alive 100 years ago. And, and these students now are landing on college campuses um, and struggling. Your, your research They're and your struggling. focus groups have have pointed out they're struggling in deep, significant ways. Uh, I, th- I think, honestly, one of the things that comes to mind immediately is these stopouts. I start, I can't finish the semester, yep. anxiety grips, I've got to leave, go home, and there's going to be this stop and start. And the bandwidth on the campus is frayed, again, because the professionals in the field are pretty much burned out. We're going to talk about that. They're at their wits end because they've gone through the same thing the student has gone through. So they don't have much mental bandwidth themselves. Mm -hmm. 
you know, the, the, and I gave the analogy earlier, the rubber band only stretches so many ways for any person. And when your personal rubber band is stretched all the way out Mm -hmm. and you're trying to deal with that for yourself and somebody else is coming to you for help, you don't have much to give there. So our counselors are burned out. There aren't enough. The resources and the budgets are too tight to probably hire more. And even if we wanted to hire more, there aren't a lot of people that we don't have enough in the pipeline to come in. I, I you know every counselor I talk to says, I'm busier than I've ever been. I'm working weekends. I'm working night. I'm doing telehealth. I'm doing everything I can to support people. I have no bandwidth left. Mm-hmm. I'm working 70 or 80 hours a week to help others, you know, and I look around and all my friends in the field are doing the same. We don't have anywhere to go. We need yeah. more people coming out, graduating to start doing some of this who are fresh and not burned out. Um, you know, our student life professionals, let alone the counselors, they're in the same boat mm-hmm. and, you know, they're short staffed. There are uh, lots of open positions in mm-hmm. higher education because we can't hire to fill. So you had a staff of seven, you're down to a staff of four. What are those four doing? And there's an onslaught more than ever of the students coming saying, I need help. I'm in crisis. I feel this way. I feel that way. It's almost like this vicious circle, Jay, when I'm on campus talking to the student, I hear this from the student. Mm-hmm. You know, they go, well, I went over to the student life office, but, you know, the next appointment isn't for a week and a half. They're short staffed. Mm-hmm. There are no appointments. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, what's going to happen in a week and a half to a student who's, you know, in need or is said, I need right. I need an appointment. Right. So it is it is it's been an eye opening experience for me to talk to both sides on campuses. You know, I'll, I'll talk to student life folks and they're like. We're doing everything we can. We're burned out. We're, we're down three positions. I talk to the students and they say, I really need help. <laughs> oh, and there right. we are. No, no. Uh, as a parent, uh, I, I'm thinking about, and I'm thankful. I'm very thankful. I was not uh, sending uh, a 17, 18 year old to college yes. during that moment, during, during this moment of turmoil. I am very thankful for that because I'm not sure exactly how I would have done that. My my gut would say that I look at that young person, I have two sons, my, my son and say, you know, let's take time. Let's, let's, you don't have to go now unless you've got something that you've just, you're on fire to go start and do, yep. you know, it's okay. And so we go back to that, that gap that, year, that gap year, because and as it's a parent, okay to do that. Yeah. As a parent, I'm thinking I, I think that would be my position. Absolutely. If I don't have a young person in my house that I'm sending off healthy and well and strong to handle all the anxiety and pressures the college builds anyway, yeah. would I be the one to say, you know, they'll help you go, go work with them counseling over there. And I'm sure, you know, do they have, they don't have the bandwidth. It's hard to be in loco parentis when there's no parentis, you know, when you don't have the right. staff to do it. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, this it's just this big kind of ball of wax that I see how all these things intertwine and thread together. Mm-hmm. You're exactly right. You know, and, and just think, I mean, I can't tell you how many parents and friends who have mm-hmm. students in that in that age range who are equally frayed as their student. And it goes back to what I was saying about staff on campus. Parents are in the same mindset. 
They were working from home with kids, you know, quote unquote, underfoot, you know, stressful times. You couldn't leave the house for long periods of time. There was, you know, you're kind of held together there, trying Mm -hmm. to be creative about entertaining each other. And parents were exhausted, you know. And so when the students coming to a parent saying, everybody's kind of in that same place mentally, and it just creates this, you know, round robin kind of conversation, I think of I'm, I'm, I just stay home. I don't have the mental energy to say, suck it up buttercup. Like I would have two years ago Just stay home. It's I'm thinking of myself as a parent. Yeah. It's safe. And uh, I I can, it's sustainable and predictable and yeah, yeah. I can control that. Right. I can control that as the parent. Mm -hmm. I can't control what will happen out there. And I don't have the mental energy myself having gone through what you just went through to, you know, give you the pep talk and say, Mm -hmm. oh, in my day, I haven't experienced this or wasn't in my day. You know, we've always go as, as, as a parent to our experience and say, well, this is how I did it. And you give examples. And if I made it through, you can make it through. And again, Mm -hmm. suck it up, buttercup. We've all done it. You got this. Yeah. I don't know if you have this because I don't know if I have this. So how can I tell you, you do. And, and you, you mentioned this. um, And and lastly, the, the topic of, of this burnout and turnout of faculty staff, we've, we've seen this uh, in, in a, in a very focused, intense way in enrollment, admissions, mm-hmm. financial aid, marketing, in those places that we were, those, those offices that we work with, we're seeing this significant exodus of significant. talent, skills, um, experience, longevity, people walking away from 20, 30 years of, of mm-hmm. higher ed experience and going, nope, nope not going to do this anymore. I'm taking a retirement or I am just not in this. And they're working, doing something completely different. Um, it, it, it's, well, it's, it's really sobering, but staggering that, you know, as you can, you can speak to this. When I had an admissions counselor job open, I get 40 applications for it. I get 50 applications. I could choose almost anybody from that group. And I'd yeah. say, I've got somebody here that can do this. This is great. I, a, a campus visit coordinator, I'd have 50 applications for that. Now yeah. we're looking, we're looking, working with colleges now that, that have four. Yeah. I was going to say, they can't get any. Most of the campuses I'm working with, um, and I'm on, as you know, and you said earlier, I'm on a lot of campuses in person. Huh. I had one campus that was ecstatic. They got nine applications for three open admission counselors. They Jeez. thought that was great. Nine. So that means you have three applications per position. And they said, mm-hmm. you know, really, we only we only we had to, you know, cut two of them immediately. You know, we couldn't hire them because they had some sort of, you know, unfortunate Thing. background <laughs> on the resume or something. Sure. You know, and and so then that left us with a pool of seven to hire three. Well, yeah. okay. You know, the challenge is, and I've said this all along, and, you know, campus presidents and leaders, when I talk to boards, they hear me and they recognize it, yet nothing changes. Mm-hmm. It's the salary levels. Sure. You know, I mean, if we can't be competitive in the open market with the salary, why would somebody apply for that? You know, right. if you can if you can go over here and make 10 or 15,000 right out the gate, I would do that. Wouldn't you? Yeah. Absolutely. We, you and I have talked with directors and vice presidents that would say, I'm willing to figure out a way to do a hybrid 
schedule home uh-huh. and in work. I, I'm willing to do that. And yet they get to the CFO, they get to the cabinet. Somebody along the way goes, oh, no. Yeah, we no, can't we're do not that. doing because that's not what we do with that job, and and they're well, not because to, it's the tradition of what higher ed's always done, Jay. Exactly the way it's always looked. So we're not right. going to change that. Oh no, let's not and, do that. And twenty five year olds, you know, like like my kids, they're both semi remote, and they would look yeah. at it and go, "I don't want the commute. I don't want to do this anymore." That's what, another thing that the pandemic gave us was this eye opening of I can work from home and I can be productive at home, and that's an advantage. And colleges are not not there yet. Jay, I want to ask you a question. This is just hypothetical, but it's for the for the interest of this conversation. Yeah. If someone came to you right now and said, Jay, if you come and you work at this campus on mm-hmm. campus five days a week, and I'm willing to pay you 20000 more than you're making an enrollment fuel right mm-hmm. now in a fully remote position, would you do it for the money? No. Me no. either. No, I wouldn't. I mean, I, I'm i in a place now where having been a remote worker pre-pandemic, because of course, enrollment fuel has right. always been virtual, which was yeah. one of the allures of the company, I think, when we were hiring. Mm-hmm. You know, now that I've been, I work from home and I've been working from home, this is my starting my seventh year, mm-hmm. the thought of going somewhere and being told that I have to be in that space I just mm-hmm. I'm like you could offer me twenty thousand dollars a year more to do that, yeah. and I would say no. No. So why would our why would our why would our young folks who are used to that do that? We're 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 kind of old, Jay. We're not. Well, I know. <laughs> if, if if I feel that, you know, a twenty five year old, right. okay, we, you know, one of the one of the most uh, to me, I I, I just I, I, I'm confused by it. We work with a lot of clients that work with. Uh, with Slate, with a CRM system. And CRM systems can be done easily remotely. And we work with so many schools that have job openings for a Slate or CRM administrator that they have to be in a seat, in a cubicle on campus instead of opening it up to the talent of the country and saying, "I I can hire somebody a thousand miles away and they can do the job and I'll bring them on campus three times a year. That's my question. We need to be saying why, 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 why yeah. are we doing that? You know, I I will tell you um, early in the in the uh, formation of enrollment fuel, the owner Mike Wessner and I, you mm-hmm. know, had an early conversation, Jay, and we talked about kind of a bricks and mortar space or require, you know, something mm-hmm. where. And I said, why would we ever do that, Mike? I said, if we are in Chapel Hill, while it is a hub of knowledge, you know, Mm -hmm. the research triangle, and there are plenty of great people, Mm -hmm. I'm still limiting or we're still limiting ourselves to kind of this area. I said, if we stay 100% virtual, we have the world, the talent Mm -hmm. of the world at our fingertips. And if Mm -hmm. you think we have people in Germany, we have people in Canada, we have people who, you know, work from other remote areas, you know, certain times of the year, I I do that. I'm, Mm -hmm. you know, I work in South America sometimes for part of the year or whatever. Why wouldn't colleges and universities think the same way? This goes back to that entrepreneurial mindset of don't you right. want the best talent? Right. Why limit yourself? You know, it, it, ten years ago, it was unthinkable for me to 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 conceptualize that going to work every day would be a stressor. That was 
that was not a stressor. That was, that was great, you know? And yet now things have yeah. shifted. And for a yeah. lot of people, that is a stressor. Give me the option of doing a little bit here and a little bit there. I'll be on campus. Sometimes I will, sometimes I won't. And, and, and I think that colleges have to rethink their job descriptions and how, pe- how people do their jobs. I I mean, I even look at, you know, the UK is piloting the four-day work week. Mm-hmm. Um, and the early research is showing that people are as or more productive working a 10 hour a day and having a three day weekend mm-hmm. and it's going well. I don't, I mean, I think they're going to probably implement that, you know, mm-hmm. but this is again, being creative, thinking outside the box, changing things up, you know, what's going on. What did, what is it that the market, the worker needs mm-hmm. How do we as an employer meet them where they are to maximize the benefits of them producing what we need them to produce in a way that is non-stressful, non-conflict ridden? You know, I think all of these are important questions for higher ed to really grapple with and to kind of get beyond that. This is how we've always done it. And this Mm -hmm. is the expectation. You're right. Why can't a slate person who works on a CRM I mean, we we've had some really great people from some really good places working with us and they're mm-hmm. all over, you know, yeah. I can't imagine us limiting. We, you know, anyway, we have some, you know, I will say we have a lot of really great slate ninjas rocking out of California <laughs> yeah. all the way on the other side of the country to enrollment fuel. And their biggest challenge is figuring out the time zone changes. That's and their the biggest meetings, challenge. You know, you know, there's a there's a DNA strand, and it it really dawned on me throughout our conversation here. There's a DNA strand through all of these things that we've talked about um, in in rethinking outcomes, in presenting outcomes, and rethinking delivery, and rethinking how to capture people that are are looking at walking away from from education, both both sides, getting an education and providing an education. Um, rethinking how we respond to mental health, how we respond to delivery, how we respond to job descriptions. And it's change. It's change. It's change. Change is the only consistent. And, and, and uh, for how, well, forever, you know, colleges, universities, like you said, traditions didn't force schools to change, but if, if their change is survival now, change is both not only survival, but thriving, it You're is. going to survive and thrive if you're able to, uh, as an enrollment leader, as a as a leader on a campus, help your school move from the old way of doing things to a new way of thinking. Uh, and, absolutely. and there's there's our thread right there. Yeah. It comes through all of them. I totally agree. I say that I'm very brave to say that in board meetings in front mm-hmm. of presidents and you know, I was at a board meeting, I don't know, two, three months ago, and um, I, I just cracked up because the president, I was standing in front of the whole board, mm-hmm. the president is here, and the chairman of the board is here, flanked, mm-hmm. and I said something that I knew was going to be kind of controversial, but it was the mm-hmm. right thing to say, and I looked to the president, and I said, at the risk of losing my contract, <laughs> I have to say blah, 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 and the chair said, it's okay. You go ahead and say what you have to say. Remember, I pay his contract. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it, it was just, you know, you have to, you have to ask the questions. You have to push the boundaries. You have to be 
a little bit of a daredevil in the space to yeah. start asking, why are we doing this? Is this the right thing? Um, Jay, I want to just mention two other real quick things. I think when we talk about the, the staffing issue, mm-hmm. I also think that this is the first time for many of us mm-hmm. who are sitting in seats, much like a gap year where a parent is saying it's okay right. for people to go, you know what? It's okay for me to not feel guilty about leaving to make more money or leaving Mm -hmm. to be happy where Mm -hmm. I can work from home Mm -hmm. or leaving to take early retirement. It's Mm -hmm. not selfish. You know, I I think most of us in the higher ed space get into it because it's a passion. It's a passion project for us. And we've never, obviously we've never signed up to make, you know, millions of dollars. We would have never gone into education if that were the case, Mm -hmm. but I think for the first time, the pandemic has also changed the work marketplace in a space for us to say, mm-hmm. it's okay. That's not yeah. happened before. I can't no. remember a time in my life where I would have ever felt like it's okay. Mm-hmm. Right. I think many of our employer employees on campuses feel that way. Like, it's yeah. okay for me to think of myself, think of my family. There's you know, the landscape is, it's expensive. Cost of living is up. We might be heading, you know, toward this recession, depression, everybody's talking about. There's a still uncertainty out there that allows people to say, it's okay. I have yeah. to do what I can for this. The the dark side of passion can be undying loyalty. Um, yes. You know, tradition. It's a form tradition. of tradition, Jay. You're absolutely right. And people get into higher education as that passion and calling. And then along the way, it, it changes into a, uh, a trap. I, I had a, I had a boss that said the the difference between a, the rut, a rut, and the grave is depth. So <laughs> you got to continue to find yourself. You got a groove. That's a good thing. Just don't go deeper into it so that uh, you can't feel like you get out. So what was the second thing you were going to say? The second thing is just, um, you know, the silent resignation. I think that leaders also need to be very observant and cautious about the silent, the, the silent resignation movement. I think that we do have folks who are in positions and they are fatigued or they feel like they can't get the resources they need. They can't get what they need to be successful yet. Their loyalty has them stay, Yeah. but mentally they're sort of like, I'm just, I'm just kind of keeping the trains running on the tracks because mm. I can't do anything else. And they, 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 they're giving up. They're, they're not leaving the workspace, but they're not really making change or impacting because they've just kept the kind of the silent resignation They're there, but they're not Not really really there. there. Yeah. Right. Right. And I can understand why, but I mean, I do think that our HR folks and our leaders and our, they, we need to watch for that across our campuses for Mm -hmm. those folks and either um, retool their jobs so they're passionate in a different space, because many Mm -hmm. of these people have great value um, or we need to be cognizant about resourcing them to give them that energy to be successful. So they Mm -hmm. reignite and Mm -hmm. they aren't resigned in their mind, but they reignite that passion and get engaged again, giving us what we expect. Right. And the uh, thing, one of the things that does come to mind here is uh, over the past number of years, uh, much like coaches 
in professional sports and Roman leaders were expendable if they didn't win every season. And you had a, you had a losing season or two losing seasons and suddenly, you know, you know, they're gone. And uh, I think higher education leaders need to rethink uh, losing that talent on purpose. You know, there are some people that shouldn't be in positions, but there are generally speaking, a lot of people that are being shown an exit that shouldn't have been shown an exit simply because the leadership thinks there's going to be a better shortstop or first baseman out there. And there's not, there's There's the, my gosh, Jay, I'll just say, the, the pool right now, we've had so many people who are, you know, in that bracket of retiring. And sadly, we have this middle level that hasn't really been given that next layer of responsibility. And there's right. this huge gap. And so yeah. it's so challenging, I think, right now in the hiring space. But that's a that's another whole episode for it the is. enrollment edge. <laughs> the enrollment edge. And on this episode, we have been uh, talking to Dr. Jackie Elliott, president at Enrollment Fuel. Jackie. I love, and you know this because we, we yammer all the time about stuff. Um, I love talking to you about your travels and what you're hearing and your trends. And uh, and I, I just so thank you for your time. Uh, we're coming to the end of our, our episode yeah. today, but uh, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you, Jay. And um, to all my colleagues out there in the great enrollment recruitment land, happy new year, happy new season. We're kicking off and just wish you all the best. And uh, obviously, there are a lot of challenges out there, but, you know, stay strong. We have your back. If you ever need anything, reach out. Love it. Thank you, Jackie. All right. Thanks, Jay. All right. You've been listening to The Enrollment Edge. Please join me again when we'll dive into yet another hot topic for college enrollment and marketing leaders. The Enrollment Edge is sponsored by Enrollment Fuel, a full-service student search and marketing company. Student recruitment is always changing. Maybe your college can use a trusted partner. I'm your host, Jay Feggie. Thanks for listening in.